This sermon, The Gospel and Imprecatory Psalms, was preached by Derek Overstreet on Sunday, July 30th, 2023, at Sovereign Grace Church. Well, if you can open up your Bibles to Psalm 58. Somebody mentioned to me one of the things I've appreciated about this series is we're hitting some very familiar psalms, but at the same time we're, we're hitting some psalms that they haven't really been in that often. They're unfamiliar to them. Well, our psalm this morning may or may not be familiar to you, uh, but it does represent a new genre this morning, and that is the imprecatory psalm. Psalm 58 is what is known as an imprecatory psalm. It's it's known uh, known as that because in it, David is praying for the eternal damnation of his enemies. That's what makes an imprecatory psalm what it is. David is, is is, is raining down curses, asking God to judge his enemies. If you've ever read an imprecatory psalm, you know that they can be disturbing. <laughs> they are hard to read, and indeed, this one has some lines in it that will be hard to read. And they can be even harder, it can be even harder to discern what role, if any, does an imprecatory psalm play in the Christian's life today? That's not an easy question. That's not an easy question at all. I mean, after all, the psalms are a treasure for the Christian, even the one that we will look at this morning. All of them, including Psalm 58, are the holy words of Scripture inspired by the Holy Spirit. And like the rest of Scripture, Psalm 58 is authoritative over and profitable. It is intended to be profitable for our lives. And so we can't just cancel them because they're brutal. So what do we do with them? Well, this week I I watched a a video of John Piper. It was one of those Ask John videos. They're brilliant because he's brilliant. (laughs) People come up with really good questions. And somebody asked that question. And so John was asked that question. And John Piper paused. And I counted 20 seconds, his head down. Expressions like... (laughs) And I thought, wow, the piper pause. (laughs) And he said something to the effect of, that's a hard one. That's a hard one. So this week, and particularly this morning as a preacher of an imprecatory psalm, I, I am approaching God's word with an extra measure of fear and trembling. I'm acutely aware of both my need and your need for the Spirit's help 
as we wrestle with what we find in this psalm. So I want you to stand, and let's read this together. We will pray and dig in. Psalm 58. Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? No. In your hearts you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on earth. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ear so that it does not hear the voice of the charmers or of the cunning enchanter. Oh God, and here's the prayer. Oh God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away. When he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime, like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, we come to your word needy. We come to your word hungry. We come to your word, hopefully humble, ready to learn, ready to hear from your spirit through, through your word preached by an inadequate preacher. And yet our, our confidence is in this, that your word does not come back void, that your spirit is here, and that our Savior is keeping us every moment of the next few minutes. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's what we're going to do this morning. We will walk through this passage. We'll try to understand it in its original context. And then we will look at a few ways the gospel shapes how Psalm 58 can function in our Lives. We won't hit, say, everything that can be said about an imprecatory psalm. There will be plenty left out, but I do believe that by the time we leave today that, that you will be equipped to better understand a psalm like Psalm 58, indeed, perhaps in faith, to know how it works out in your life as well. I have two points this morning. A portrait of the wicked... We're going to see that in verses, in the first uh, four verses, and then five through nine, six through nine, we're going to look at a prayer against the wicked. David gives us a portrait of the wicked, and then he prays a brutal prayer 
against them. So let's look at the first point this morning where we find a portrait of the wicked. Psalm 58 begins with David speaking directly to his enemies and hear what he has to say. Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? David is addressing his enemies. Who are his enemies? Who are the wicked that he is talking about here? Well, you'll notice at the the end of uh, verse 1a, you'll notice that that word there, gods, it's, it's translated from a Hebrew word that can mean mighty one or ruler. And so I think in the immediate context, uh, we have to understand this as rulers, as those in power over people. And even more immediate context and I believe the inscriptions in the Psalms surrounding Psalm 58 would lead us to believe that specifically and above all, David has Saul in mind. He has Saul in mind and the officials who are supporting Saul in his mission to murder David. You, you look at the Psalms around this and, and in the inscriptions... It's clear that that David has Saul on his mind as he is a refugee. If if you remember the story about Saul, Saul the king of Israel. And at some point, God puts his finger on David. And it was from that moment that that, uh, 2 Samuel says that the Lord removed his spirit from Saul and he gave it to David. And there is just this spiral downward of Saul, particularly from that point on. Saul, the king of Israel, the one who was to protect God's people, the one who was to to lead God's people in righteousness, the one who was to go out and oppose the nations that opposed Israel's God, well, he has turned inward. He is about himself. He has become uh, wicked in his ways. And so, even, even the leader, the chief leader of Israel, the king of Israel, is spoken to in this way from David. He has become wicked. And so, first and foremost, David has Saul and his officials in mind. But, but then in general, and as we can, as we can glean from the other imprecatory, imprecatory psalms, in general, the enemies here are are the ungodly rulers both in Israel and beyond, those who would oppose God, those who would oppose his people. And the challenge that David puts forth is pointed. Did you notice that? Do you use your power to speak righteously to evil? Do you deal with people justly? And David doesn't give them any time to filibuster. He doesn't give them any time to stonewall. He immediately, with with emphasis, he immediately fires back with this conclusion in verse 2. No. No, you don't. In your hearts, you devise wrongs. In other words, in your hearts, you scheme wickedness and unrighteousness and evil. Your hands deal out violence on the earth. Did you notice there in verse 2 how, how 
David goes from heart to hand. Did you catch that? In their hearts, he says. In their hearts, they have devised wicked plans. In other words, their, their evil is thought out. Their wicked governance comes from the, within them. That's what the scripture teaches us about, uh, about the things we do and say, right? The, 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 the heart is the fountain of life. From the heart flows. And so these, David's enemies, their wickedness flows from their, from their hearts, but they carry it out with their hands. They, they deal it out, David says. Your hands deal out violence. They dispense. They mete out violence. Their, their wicked, evil hearts are, are unleashed, if you will, on God's people. So the picture that David is painting here is a picture of a calculated evil and, if you will, executed with business-like ruthlessness and efficiency. And then in verse 3 through 5, David gets very specific in his portrayal of these people. Look what it says. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. They have venom, like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ears so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or of the cunning enchanter. We're, we will come back to these verses in a moment, but, but right now, hear what David says. You, you, you are poisonous liars who listen to nobody. Your ears are, are shut up. You're like the creature that is embodied in the scriptures as evil, a snake. And you've always been this way. You'll, you were born this way. You came out of your mother's womb this way. And you will never change. So that's a portrait that David gives us of the ones that he is about to pray curses upon. The ones that he is about to call out to God to damn their souls. And so in verse 6, he begins his imprecatory prayer and he gets very graphic if we understand it about what he wants to do, what he wants God to do to the wicked that oppose his enemies. And that's our second point, a prayer against the wicked. He's given us a picture of them, who they are, what they are like, and now here is his heart for them. And by the time we get to verse 6, David is outraged at their wickedness, he is outraged at the evil he sees, and he does not opt for a passive shrugging of shoulders. He does not opt for civil diplomacy. Like I said, he is about to rain down curses from above. The first one is that God would cause them to be like a defanged lion. Look at verse 6. Oh God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. You know, there are few animals 
that inspire terror like a lion. A lion is powerful. It is fierce. It can devastate its prey in an instant of a moment. I probably dated myself here, but do you remember Omaha's Wild Kingdom? <laughs> I used to watch that as a kid. And those lions that, 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 that just like Scripture says about Satan, would, would prowl and move and then pounce. And it's their, it's their fangs. Fangs that can grow up to three inches long, two on the top and two on the bottom that sink into the neck of their prey, killing them almost instantly. It's a powerful and dangerous animal. This, the lion, if you remember, is the animal that Peter used in 1 Peter 5, uh, 5 8 to illustrate the danger of the devil. In chapter in, in this in the psalm just before, in chapter 57, verse 4, David likened the danger he was in as Saul pursued him to being in the midst of lions. And here he prays, Lord, make my enemies like a defanged lion. To be a defanged lion is to make a lion powerless, ultimately. Ultimately, if they can't kill, they can't eat. And so David asked God to defang his enemies, making them impotent and short-lived. Second, he he likens them to what he would like God to do to rushing water. Notice the uh, uh, chapter or verse 7. Let them vanish like water that runs away. If you've ever, in, in the monsoon season, we're in it right now. If you've ever watched the water rush through the washes, you know how destructive water can be. If you've ever watched the videos of uh, flash floods, you know the rushing waters destroy everything in their paths. Trees, homes, telephone poles, vehicles. If you get caught in rushing water, you're probably going to die soon. It's probably not going to work out well for you. But you know what happens to that water? Eventually, it disappears. <laughs> Eventually, it moves on. It soaks up into the ground. It pours out into the sea. Well, David is asking God to cause his enemies to, to pass by quickly, like, a, uh, like water that runs away. Lord, cause them to pass by quickly and disappear, never to be seen again. Exterminate them. Cause them to cease to exist. And then the second half, verse 7, look what he says. He talks about a blunted arrow. When he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. Again, in chapter 57, verse 4, David likened the words of the wicked to swords, to, to spears, 
and to arrows. And to arrows. David knows how destructive words can be. He knows the power of words. And coming from a wicked mouth, they can't flowing from a wicked heart. They can do much damage. I, you may or may not have heard about this, but there, there's a teenage girl. Her name is Chloe. Chloe Cole. She's been on the news. She was before Congress this week testifying, testifying to the absurdity of trying to transition your gender. And in her testimony, she said, my voice was always a little deeper than the other girls. I like to play sports like the boys. So I figured something was off. Mom and dad took her to the doctor. And the doctor said, you have two choices. We can mutilate her body or she's going to commit suicide. You choose. She had a double vasectomy, mastectomy. They butchered her breasts. The words of a doctor that were powerful and led to the destruction of this young lady. I pray God saves her soul and somehow heals her. Her life is full of regret right now at this moment. She realizes from the puberty blockers and the surgery, she said, she'll never have a child. She'll never breastfeed. But I'm a woman. Words are powerful. Words are destructive. And like the doctor's wicked counsel to Chloe, David prays his enemy's counsel, or as it says in verse 1, their wicked decrees that they would have no effect. In essence, they would bounce off their targets just as a blunted arrow bounces off its object. And then notice what he says. (laughs) A disappearing snail. David has quite the imagination. Verse 8, let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime. Listen, I grew up in the Northwest, and from October to April, you got up in the morning, and snails, slugs were everywhere. The slime trails were everywhere. And as far as I know, Snails and slugs don't dissolve into their own slime. But it can seem as if they do when you see these trails that they leave behind, parts of themselves that that they leave behind. And I think that that in a weird way, um, I mean, in the middle of the desert in a cave, I have no idea how this imagery came to David. But but I think the idea here on David's mind is self-destruction. That the wickedness of the wicked would destroy them. David is praying, Lord, cause their wickedness and opposition to you, to him, to be self-destructive. James Montgomery Boyce says, in regard to this, he says, in 1934, the great British historian Arnold Toynbee 
began a study of world history that occupied him until 1961 and eventually filled 12 large volumes. In this massive work, Toynbee isolated 34 distinct civilizations. Each of these came upon the pages of history for a time and then passed away. Egypt was once a great world power, but it is weak today. Babylon was mighty, but its territories has been divided, and even the discovery of great stores of oil in that area of the world has not restored it or the surrounding nations to a dominant position on the world stage. Greece and Rome, once wonders of mankind, have fallen. The Soviet Union fell apart. Even the United States of America, though now at the very pinnacle of world power, and he wrote this in 1996, is in decline and will not escape the inexorable law of history, namely that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. I think, I think that's the idea here, that, that David's enemies, that their own wickedness would cause them to implode. It would destroy them. I do think this is the confidence we should have as Christians. Those that oppose God will eventually destroy themselves by their own evil. It, it may take time, but generally speaking, as Mr. Boyce notes, generally speaking, that is what happens. And then we get to perhaps the most difficult imagery in this psalm, verse 8. He says of his enemies, let the, let the stillborn, let them be like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. This is, this is tough imagery. This is brutal imagery faces came to my mind this week. And I pray, Lord, be merciful to them if memories come rushing in. But I think the point is this. Given their wickedness and evil, it would be better if they never existed. Make them like the stillborn child and cease their existence. Never let them see the day of the light of day for another moment. Exterminate them now. Many of the commentators said this is David's way of saying the wicked are like an abortion. The wicked are like an aborted baby. Remember David's words in verse 3, the wicked go astray from birth. So Lord, why not just end it for them? Just cease their existence. Though they live, they no longer live. They don't deserve to live. Finally, he talks about an extinguishing wind. Notice verse 9. 
Sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. Um, One night this week, we had all of our grandkids over, and we have these magnetic blocks and uh, I guess panels. I don't know what they are. Anyways, you can build really cool things with them pretty easily. And a couple of our grandkids love to build tall houses. But we do have one grandson. Um, His name is Jack. He's not here to defend himself. He might be doing this in the nursery as we speak. (laughs) But if he sees you building with those blocks... He drops what he is doing, and he makes a beeline, and he comes in, you don't know it, he comes in and he kicks that thing and destroys it. No qualms about it. And inevitably, all the other grandkids, Jack, Mommy. That's the picture here. David is using this imagery, you'll notice, of, of the pot and the, and the heat. The, 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 uh, it almost gives you the idea of, of kindling. And so the idea here is perhaps maybe an early morning fire in its early stages, a pot of water. This, this would have been imagery to David. He would have been very familiar with living in a cave. And then he says that the Lord would come and sweep them away. I think that's the idea that David gives us, that, that, that like a wind would come and just a, a little dust devil or a, or a tornado would come and just pick up that pot and put that fire out and just sweep it away right in front of you as you sit, waiting. Waiting for whatever you were going to get from that. Do it now. Do it quick. Do it all the way. Destroy them. Destroy everything that they built. Do this, God, to my enemies. So how should we think about David's prayer? Well, I think, carefully, humbly, and like every other part of Scripture and life, through the lens of the gospel. When we approach a psalm like this, we need to be careful. We can't reject it. It's the word of God. But at the same time, I don't believe we just step into David's shoes. I think there's three things that we need to be informed by when we approach a psalm like this. The first one is the nature of our mission. The nature of our mission. You know, there's a great continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
But there is also appropriate discontinuity between the two, and for one overarching reason, the gospel. Jesus' life and death and resurrection, it changes everything in one sense for God's people. Think about David's day as he, as he cried out this prayer. In David's day, God's people, Israel, was set against the world, right? Israel was called to separate from the nations. Indeed, they were called to, to cut off the nations. They, they were called to, to oppose the enemies of God. Their mission was to build a holy nation that, that opposed the surrounding pagan nations and anyone else who would oppose God's kingdom. Jesus changed all that. Our mission today is clear, to preach the gospel. We are not building a theocracy. Christian nationalism is not our thing. Our goal, we don't get up in the morning to Christianize our government. That's not what we are called to. Our goal is building the church. Make, availing ourselves as instruments in God's hand as he builds his church through the proclamation of the gospel. The, the great commission is not about cutting off. It's not about opposing. It's not about destroying sinners. It's about evangelizing sinners and discipling those who by grace believe through the church. That's our mission. It's a very different day than David's day. Jesus' own words, do you remember what he said? He said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you something different. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In Luke 6, he says, but I say to you here, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. And so Jesus said, listen, as Christians, we don't pray for the damnation of sinners. We pray for their salvation. We pray for the demise of their evil work, yes, which, by the way, the gospel is the ultimate answer to that, isn't it? But we don't pray for their personal damnation. We pray God protects us and others from suffering at their hands, but we don't pray he strikes them dead instantly. And one reason is this. As far as we're concerned, no one is out of the reach of God's saving grace. He alone knows who he will save. He alone knows when he will save them. As far as we're concerned, everyone, even the most evil one, could be in heaven with you.
Now, you may object. I understand that. Whoa, what about, what about, what about doctors murdering babies every day at Planned Parenthood? Uh, evil. What, what, what about deranged gunmen slaughtering young kids at school? Sick. Wicked. What about Islamic terrorists? Does everybody remember back in 2015 when at least I think the Western world was shocked when the images of ISIS parading Coptic Christians onto the beach and filming their beheading simply because they were Christians. You remember that? I saw the video. It was brutal. It was brutal. As I watched the video, I cried out for those men and for their families. I cried out for the church in Egypt. But I also prayed this about their murderers. Lord, send someone to preach the gospel to them. And if they reject you, use any means necessary to end their evil and the suffering it causes. I trust you. I prayed for their redemption because that's what I'm here for is to be a part of seeing even the most wretched sinner saved by grace. And then I prayed for God to do what he believes is just and right. I'm not saying that's the perfect New Testament imprecatory prayer, but I do think that that is an appropriate prayer toward the wicked and the evil. Uh, look up at the inscription with me for a moment. Right, right up there, just for verse 1. It says to the choir master, according to do not destroy a miktam of David. A miktam, we're not, there's questions on exactly what that means, but there is some scholarly consensus that it means engraved. Some have said that they wonder, was this psalm like other psalms that use that word, engraved on the sides of the cave where David would, was hiding and seeking refuge from his enemies? Was this a prayer that, that he engraved? Maybe, we, we don't know. It could be. But regardless, here's what we do know. We know what has been engraved on our hearts is a message of forgiveness and mercy and grace meant for us to not only remind ourselves of every day, 
but take to whoever the Lord would have us take it to. So consider the nature of your mission. It's not to destroy. It's to be a part of redemption. Second, a psalm like this should, we should remember the depths of our own sin. Notice what he says in verse 3. I told you we'd go back to this. He said, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. You know what that sounds like? That sounds a lot like David's description of himself. It's not. It's a description of his wicked enemies. But if you go back, flip back to chapter 51, verse 5, notice what he says about himself. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And so at the very foundational level, David realizes, I'm just like them. <laughs> I am just like them. David knows that he too was born an evil sinner. And we know the same to be true about us because Romans tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. We see that in Adam all are born with a sin nature in Romans 5. So David with his words he, he identifies he identifies with his enemies. Now listen, we know God, God hates all sin, agreed? And while all sin might not be equally heinous, all sin is heinous in God's eyes. And like David prayed in Psalm 51, ultimately, the sin and wickedness in the world is not against me. It's not against you. It wasn't even against those dozens of Coptic Christians who were beheaded on a beach in the Middle East. It's against God. If we read Psalm 58, we shake our fist, yes! And we begin to apply this to slow down. Slow down. This is not about your emotions. This is not about what you think is wrong or right. God's judgment is about his character. God's judgment is about his plan for his creation. We should hate sin, yes. And th th this is worth this is important to remember. Hating sin is an act of righteousness. Okay, so, so we should hate sin. But here's the question for us all. Do we hate our own sin as much as we hate the sin of others? Are you willing to call down imprecatory prayers upon yourself? We should have burned. Remember watching, I, I think I shared this a few weeks ago, so forgive me for repeating myself, but I remember an eye-opening moment for me watching the city of Portland burn. Antifa had set it ablaze. 
and my response as I watch people run and chaos and people being injured and hurt and destruction, my response was a verbal, no one else was in the room, let them burn. (laughs) We don't need Antifa. They're wretches. And they are. And we don't. But I should have burned. I lived life opposed to God in every way. And so this is, this, is, this is important. Remembering the depths of our depravity produces a humility that produces gratitude for grace and, I believe, compassion for the lost. Yes, even the wicked who rule over and oppose our Lord and Savior with their position and power. So when it comes to imprecatory prayer, we need to remember the nation, nation, the nature of our mission. We need not to forget the depths of our own sin. And third, we need to recount the promise of God's justice. Look at verse 10. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges. Listen, the gospel comes with this promise, eternal justice. Those in Christ will live forever with him as their reward. All who reject Jesus will pay the price of their sins forever in hell. And we must keep our eyes on this. And listen, James Montgomery Boyce wrote about the corruption in the United States of America in 1996. How much more relevant, how much more truer is it today? And so we must keep our eyes on heaven. We must keep our eyes on the fact that a day is coming, if not in our lives, when Christ returns, when the Lord will exact his vengeance on the wicked. You can be sure of this. No one will get away with their sin. They won't. God will make things right from the most wicked president to the most evil dictator. That is the promise of Psalm 58 and the rest of Scripture. God will not be mocked. He will, as David says, David David rains down this These curses calls out on God to damn his enemies eternally. But at the end, he trusts the Lord. He knows that the Lord will do what is just. He knows that the Lord will do what is right. Don't forget that. When you're on the internet, Don't forget that. When you're catching up on some news, however you catch up on, don't forget that. 
And you see things happening in our city, in our state, in our country, in this world. Don't forget that. God is not drawing a blind eye. He will, vengeance is his. And he will exact his judgment in his timing and according to his will, no one will get away with anything. And so we pray that until then, that the Lord will save sinners from what they will receive if he doesn't. And in the words of Paul, we do not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. The worship team can come up. Here's the point. Here's the point of this whole, of everything that's been said. The gospel turns our imprecatory prayers into impassioned pleas for God's saving mercy as we trust him to do what is just in his eyes. The gospel has turned our hearts toward God's enemies. Our eyes have been opened to the depths of our own sin, and Christ saved us when we were enemies, Romans 5. So there's a freedom here. We can, we can pray for those who oppose God with a passion to see them saved as we trust God to apply his perfect justice in his perfect timing. The gospel turns our imprecatory prayers into impassioned pleas for God's saving mercy as we trust him to do what is just in his eyes. Let's stand and sing together.